This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. I've heard it's going to be like the Spanish flu, that everybody's going to either die or know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody that died from this. Do you think it's that serious? This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. Now, it's a call-in show, everybody, if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do. Make sure to follow me on Twitter or for, for when to call. And as always, send us your questions and comments to where? That's right, askbillnye.com. Askbillnye.com. And I, as you hear, I'm joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, colleague, longtime associate, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. Oh, man. Uh this show, it's uh, its hard to keep your eyes off the latest numbers for coronavirus. For, for what? Uh, corona, for what? Coronavirus. Have you heard of it? Yes. It's always like all it, day, all the time. Sometimes they call it COVID-19. Yes. Uh, as of this morning, uh, Tuesday, March 10th, there were 114,000 people infected globally that we know of. Uh, more than 4,000 reported deaths. And the numbers are climbing quickly. People are stockpiling supplies. I know a lot of people are feeling some level of panic. All sorts of social events, all sorts of business uh, transactions are being canceled or shut down. This is an historic time. So today we are joined by none other than Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an assistant professor of medicine and infectious diseases at New York University. She's an epidemiologist who worked on the Ebola epidemic. She's also a journalist and filmmaker bringing science to the public. She has her own podcast. Welcome, Dr. Celine Gounder. Great to be here. <laughs> there, that's, that's a proper greeting. Yes, yes. And no, and no hands were touched creating that greeting. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I understand that you and I, everyone listening, Corey, even you, uh, are here because our ancestors survived the Spanish flu of 1918. And you and I wouldn't be here if Ebola had killed us. So is the corona, the COVID-19 uh, outbreak, pandemic, is it as bad or worse or who knows? 
Gosh, well, if you had to compare it with Ebola, I think those are very different uh, circumstances. Ebola was an epidemic in West Africa, whereas Spanish flu and coronavirus are pandemics. So what's the difference? Yes, what's the difference? Epidemic, pandemic. Right. So pandemic is a novel virus that people have not been exposed to before, that they have no immunity to, that is spreading across continents and in communities. Where did it come from? Well, you know, this it's quite similar in that respect to Ebola and other what we call zoonoses, which are diseases. Zoonoses. Right, right. So like the zoo, where you yes, see animals, animals, right? like zoology. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's viruses and, and so on that come from animals and cross over into humans. Do we know what animal uh, the COVID-19 crossed over from? We think the pangolin, mm-hmm. which is so, uh, sort of like a rodent that has scales on it. Um, that you find in China, it's often used in in Chinese medicine. But, you know, bats are often sort of an intermediary host. All right. So let's talk about this. What does it do to you once it infects you? Well, we know that it can infect Mm. both the upper and lower respiratory tract. So upper respiratory tract, we're talking about your nose, your throat. So when you have a common cold cough, you know, that's why you have the sniffles. That's why you have a sore throat. It can also infect the lower respiratory tract. So when we talk about things like bronchitis or pneumonia, that's what we're talking about. And so depending on where it sets up shop, you may have worse or milder disease. So is there a desirable place to get it set up? (laughs) By that, I mean... Preferably neither, right? But, you know, and this is probably what's happening in the mild cases. It's probably just the upper airway and people are able to fight it off and it doesn't make you that sick. So does that that depend on how strong your immune system is or whether it gets all the way down? Yeah, it's a reflection of how strong your immune system is, you know, how, what shape your lungs are in. Like if you're a smoker, if you have emphysema, you're not able to clear stuff out of your airways as well, you know, that sort of thing. So um, certainly that's part of the reason older people are also at risk. Their lungs are just not as strong as when you're a 20-year-old. Now, coronaviruses, this is a family of viruses. It's around everywhere all the time. What's different about this one? I guess this one's called, technically it's called SARS coronavirus 2. Severe acute respiratory respiratory. syndrome. Yeah. It's just that this particular strain is so much more virulent. Um, You know, you, the, most of the coronaviruses we encounter are really the coronaviruses that cause the common cold, but there are a couple. So the original SARS, this is kind of like SARS take two. And then you have the Middle East respiratory syndrome, those were all significantly just more virulent, kind of like the seasonal flu. You have, you know, some that are much more deadly than others. Where does the word corona come from? So crown, because it looks like there's a crown of spikes mm-hmm. on the surface of the virus. They're now, quite pretty, actually. Uh, gorgeous. And how do we get that picture with an electron microscope? That's right. So uh, this is a call-in show. That's I think we have a very good question uh, from Ryan. Ryan, are you out there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, where are you calling from? Uh, calling from Baltimore, Maryland. On hunt. What's your question? Yeah. So out there in the media, I think it's. I think a lot of people are confused about the severity of this of this public health crisis. Um, I myself take it very seriously, and I, I fully believe in the the crisis that's that's brewing in places like Italy and has been for months in China. Are you isolating yourself? Um, I'm, you know, I'm getting very close to that point. So my question is, there are two schools of thought that are circulating out there. One is that this is very much like the flu 
80% of cases are mild. They may not need medical attention, et cetera. Uh, but another school of thought is very concerned that this could be the next 1918 pandemic. And so my question is, uh, how serious should the average person, but not just elderly or immunosuppressed, but uh, maybe younger demographics as well, how serious should we be concerned about this about this virus? So I think the truth is somewhere in between. Um, you know, so you're there's been a lot of focus on case fatality rates, which means what percentage of people infected die. And so with the traditional seasonal flu, the usual seasonal flu, it's like 0.1 to 0.2% of people who are infected die. Less than 1%. Yes, less than 1%. Um, you will have seen numbers with the coronavirus quoted, uh, you know, WHO said 3.4%. Out of Iran, we've seen up to 15 16%. You know, the problem with those numbers is the denominator. So if you're not counting everybody infected those percentages can be off. The, the countries that have done the best job with this are Singapore, South Korea, where they've just done a ton of testing. So their denominators are more accurate. And based on their numbers, you're probably looking at a case fatality rate around 0.6 to 0.8%. So still significantly worse than the seasonal flu, but not as bad as the Spanish flu, which was around 2%. So, you know, it's somewhere in between. You know, what do I worry about? I, I still worry really about the elderly, people with chronic medical conditions, people who are in tight facilities. So, you know, that could be crowded facilities. So that could be anything from nursing homes and assisted living facilities to people who are incarcerated, you know, who have no way of protecting themselves. And those can be really explosive places for this kind of infection. And that's not good for the rest of the community either. And I really worry about healthcare workers. We could be yeah. really swamped. I mean, you think about this could be five, maybe 10 times worse than a typical flu season. I can tell you a typical flu season, a bad flu, se flu season like we had this past year really did stress us in terms of staffing and having the uh, number of rooms and beds. We had ERs that would be, you know, full with patients in the on stretchers in the hallway. That can be really bad. OK, so, so sort of coming to the to the core of Ryan's question, a, a typical flu season in the United States is something like 30,000 Deaths, give uh, or take? More, more, more like 50. 50,000. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about something that could be five or 10 times that. Yeah. It could be 250, even 500,000 people yeah, yeah. Uh, dying of COVID-19. Uh, you know, and I think this is where understanding a percentage that's less than 1% can still translate to a lot of people. Right. Right. Yeah, when the, uh, when the denominator is, or the numerator is 3.28 million, you mm -hmm. end up with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's a great question, Ryan. The uh, the disparity that you're talking about between government uh, between different views of how serious it is, I think, depends on it being so early in the game. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. Doc? Yeah, you know, and I think in China it was we didn't have a full grasp of what was going on. We were mostly diagnosing um, the more severe cases, you know, and then you have infection spread to Singapore and South Korea. At that point, you had testing available. They were very aggressive. South Korea tested over 100,000 people um, in their country, and it's a much smaller country than ours. We haven't tested anywhere near that many people here. And so they were able to capture those milder cases. And we have a much better picture of what coronavirus does in a population as a result of, of that work. Thank you, Ryan. Great question. Carry on. Thank you very much. But I got a, I got a, I, 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 can you sit it out? 
That's just to say, if everybody were to stay home for three months and uh, not get out there and not get exposed, could you? What is it like? Nuclear fallout? Could you wait for all the radiation to settle on the ground, come out, you'd be okay? Or is the virus still out there forever, waiting to get you? <laughs> well. I mean, it probably is still out there, so you could have a reintroduction from the wild. But if everybody were to stay put in their homes for the next three months, probably wouldn't even need to be three months, but um, would you see it disappear? You know, probably. But then in the meantime, you would also have a lot of people potentially dying at home. What would happen to the economy? You know, what would you do in that period of time? You can't just shut down life for, you know, a month uh, waiting for this to pass either. Well, people are trying to do it. I mean, all the professional conferences that I've been invited to are, like, not happening. Right. Some people are in a position to do it, but mm -hmm. not everybody is in a position to do it. I think so, that's kind of the point. Yeah. So along this line, you <clears throat> take an electron microscope, you scan the virus, which you get from somebody who's been infected from their blood or something. Yeah, from their, their airway. Nose, nose yeah. yeah. And then uh, you see its shape. How do you... Who created a test for it? How does this test vary, or how is it different from any other sort of test? Well, when you hear about coronavirus testing, there's one particular test they're really referring to, but there are different ways we can test for it. So what they're referring to is what we call a PCR test. So Polymerase chain reaction. That's right. Polymerase that's right. chain reaction. And so that's a way of looking for DNA, or in the case of this virus, RNA. They're sort of you know, related. Um, it's basically the genes um, that carry your genetic information, your your um, how, to, how to replicate. And so the PCR test is really just picking up, is there DNA of the coronavirus or RNA of the coronavirus around? The problem with that is just like, I don't know, you go to a crime scene, you could pick up somebody's DNA at a crime scene. That doesn't mean that person is there. It means they were there. So this is where there's been some confusion where people have gotten sick, they have a they seem to get better, their PCR test is still positive. Does that mean they're still infectious? We don't actually know the answer to that. So there are other tests you can do, one of which is to actually try to grow up the virus in viral culture. The challenge with that is then you're running into something that could be dangerous to technicians in the lab. So you don't really want to be doing that. Well, weren't you around that? Aren't you one of those hot zone people? I mean, I've worked in, yeah, I've worked in Ebola settings, but that doesn't mean you want to still be doing this on every patient in every hospital and mm -hmm. every lab. So that's really going to be more of a research study sort of setting. Um, and This I, is Petri dishes full of cells. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. Full of cells that That, that you're you inoculating infect. virus, yeah, yeah. And, and trying to grow it up. Um, so that's, that's going to be to really figure out, okay, symptoms are over. You're maybe PCR positive or negative. What does that really mean? Can you culture the virus? Well, so this is getting to one of the big questions that people keep asking, which is, why is it taking so long to get a to get a screening test? Why why isn't this something where you could just throw some money at it and mass produce and have screening everywhere? Well, I think this is the sad story of what's happened to public health, especially since two thousand eight. This is a big sigh. That was yeah. a big sigh. Yeah. What happened in two thousand? Well, the recession. And then since then, we've seen about a 25% cut in funding and workforce for public health. Local, state, public health departments, the CDC. CDC still has tremendous number of vacancies uh, that have not been filled due to hiring freezes and the like. 
And so and who voted for these hiring? Congress, U.S. Congress? Yeah. You know, and it, some of this, it's not just one political party or the other. Some of this was also just related to the recession and sequestration and, you know, a lot of other things. So unfortunately, our public health system took a really big hit. And so, yeah, CDC is awesome. They have great scientists. But when you're short staffed and you're not well funded and you're under a lot of pressure to do things quickly that are not easy things, complicated things, mistakes get made. And unfortunately, that has led to some delays. So let me ask us this. Since people get infected and recover from coronavirus, does that indicate that we could create a vaccine? I bet there are people out there wondering the same thing. I've, I've heard there are a few people out there with some questions about coronavirus. Jacob, are you out there? I am. How are you? Uh, we're Well, so far, we're so, fine. So far, so good. Jacob, uh, what is your question? I am just curious why a vaccination has not been found for it and, like, how long would it take until that's possible? Well, you know, part of the challenge is that there are so many viruses out there to manufacture a vaccine for each and every single virus. I mean, you would be talking about thousands of vaccines. And on top of that, this is a novel one, a new one. So, you know, I think we're actually ahead of the game with this particular one because we had some related candidate experimental vaccines that could be adapted, could be modified for this purpose. But even then, it's still experimental. And the way that we get these things Mm. approved, you go through a couple different phases of clinical trials. So you have phase one. Where you start with phase one. Phase one. Imagine that. (laughs) Wow, that's Um, cool. And you look to see, is this going to hurt somebody? You know, you want to make sure this is not going to be harmful. And so you do that in, say, 50 or so people. And then assuming— These are volunteers? Yes, healthy volunteers. So assuming no nothing no nothing disastrous, then you move on to a phase two. So with phase two, you're still looking at safety stuff, but then you're looking to see, does this actually work? So you might be checking for antibody levels, for example. Mm-hmm. And then a phase three is an even bigger study, and it's a bit more complicated because in a phase three, you would want to be, you, yeah, you're still continuing to look at safety and efficacy, but you want to be giving that vaccine in the middle of transmission. And that becomes really complicated. So in the middle of transmission means what? So in a community where the virus is spreading. It's New York, New York, let's say. Could be New York, New York. You know, but then it becomes really complicated because how do you decide who even gets it? So who gets first priority as part of this clinical trial? And who's also exposed? (laughs) (laughs) You know, who's exposed to the potential risks we still aren't 100% sure about? So Jacob... uh, does that answer your question about why a vaccine has not been developed yet? It has to go through phases one, two, three, and at the fastest it could yeah. be is a year and a half? Mm-hmm. But like with the Ebola crisis, I feel like it was much more faster for them to develop one. Well, because they already had one on the shelf. So the military, we we already knew about Ebola. That was something that was discovered in the in the 70s or so. We already knew the vi- uh, the virus the military had already been developing candidate vaccines for that because they're the ones that are often exposed to these, again, zoonoses, these animal-related viruses. So hang on a second. So does the military have its own laboratories developing these things separate from the Centers for Disease Control? Yes, yes. So you have USC AMRID, for example. You have folks at Walter Reed. So, Jacob, it's a complicated thing is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. It's all science. 
Thank you for getting us into, thank the, you, thank the, you. into the whole vaccine conversation. So how do we develop the vaccine? Do we do it with, with um, gene sequencing or do we do it by infecting mice and getting their antibodies? You know, these days it's more the former. So you're looking at the sequences, you're looking at target proteins. So for example, those spikes, you know, the on the surface of the coronavirus, mm-hmm. why we call it coronavirus is those spikes. If you can target the proteins that make up those spikes in your in your vaccine, you don't necessarily have to use live virus, for example. Um, you can just use pieces of the virus to have your body create immune reactions to that. Science Rules will be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. You're listening to Science Rules. I've heard it's going to be like the Spanish flu, that everybody's going to either die or know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody that died from this. Do you think it's that serious? You know, I don't think we know yet. I think there are a few things that are working to our advantage. Since the Spanish flu was in 1918, we did not yet have antibiotics back then. We did not have ventilators. But it is a virus, right? So just explain the connection between antibiotics and a virus. Well, right. So what happens after you get influenza very often, and actually what kills a lot of people, is you have damage to the lungs and your your immune system is actually weakened from the influenza uh, infection itself. And that leaves you susceptible to bacterial infections on top of that. Mm. And the most common ones are strep or staph. And so in the absence of antibiotics to treat that, that's what killed a lot of those people was influenza plus those bacterial infections. Uh, just like that. So antibiotics are important. We have those now. Also, as you say, we have ventilators. So if your lungs are damaged, you can go to certain hospitals and get pumped right. to keep breathing. Right. We have a lot of questions on the line of other yes, people yes, who yes. are wondering about, uh, <laughs> yes, about yes. this. Uh, I believe we have Tasha on the line. Tasha, where are you calling from? Hello. I am calling from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, greetings. Uh, how are how are things in Memphis? Are you uh, are you nervous about where we are? Are you feeling confident? I'm nervous for two reasons. First off, I heard um, probably about a week ago now that they had the first case in Tennessee. Then my mayor, the Shelby County mayor, tweeted that. The first 
case in Shelby County had also been reported. Mm-hmm. So my question is concerning mostly my daughter because she's 12 mm. and she's in school. So my question is why do they keep closing schools and canceling events to decrease the spread when there is absolutely no indication that children are really being affected by this virus? That's a good question. Uh, Yeah, great question. It's actually to protect you because we know mm -hmm. kids... Uh, are germ carriers, especially younger kids, yes. you know, and it's it's really to protect the adults in the community. You know, the kid, come, your daughter comes home with this virus. She has a sniffles, but you get fantastically sick yeah. and then you can't pay taxes. So, so, so it's all about it's controlling the vectors. Is that what yeah, you're it's saying? Controlling transmission in the community. Um, and, and really, a lot of our strategy is around protecting the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable are people with chronic medical conditions who could be of any age. Absolutely. Me. Right. There you go. Or the elderly. And so the, the shutting of schools is really about protecting you. Is this one of the main things we should be doing is avoiding any kind of events with a, with a large of with a lot of concentration of people? I mean, are we going to get to the point, do you think, where we're going to have to be doing widespread school closures and things like that? Well, I, you know, I think it depends on I think you have to look at these things case by case. So are you in a place where there is community transmission? Is there sporadic? Are there sporadic cases? So maybe travel-related, you know, just a handful. Are there no cases? So those are three different things. Um, you know, what's the density of people in a space? Is it indoors? Is it outdoors? You know, a crowded indoor space is very different from, you know, being in Central Park in the middle of the day on a Wednesday. And then you have to look at the demographics of who's attending these events. Is it all just young people? Is it skewing older? Um, You don't sound so good, by the way. I'm hearing some coughing in the background. Um, That's my daughter. Oh, no. She has been biting a cough the last two months. That's the other reason that I'm concerned because she actually developed sort of a respiratory thing back um, in February. And she's been battling it for practically two months. Has she still been going to school? She, She is. She's on spring break right now, thank God. But she does not have a fever. Mm-hmm. She never had a fever. Mm-hmm. Well, you're raising this is another good question. So, Dr. Gounder, how do you know if it's if it's COVID nineteen, and then how do you gauge whether you wait it out or you or you hospitalize yourself? Well, there's no way to know just by symptoms alone because many viruses can cause the exact same symptoms. Yeah. I think if you do have a chronic medical condition, if you are over the age of fifty. Um, And definitely, if you have a fever with these symptoms, you should definitely be presenting for medical care. I think one thing that we are going to start seeing as testing ramps up in the next week or two, um, some thought being given to how do we test people who may not be so sick, but we would like to know if they have coronavirus or not because we want to prevent further transmission. And so that is something that is being given a lot of thought to. Wow. Your daughter sounds like she's in rough shape. She is. We're going to the doctor tonight. Oh, good. good. That's well, part I think of that's why good. I called. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, t- t- take good care of yourself and yeah. exercise reasonable caution. 
Yeah. Or wash hands, wash hands. I definitely will. Thank you. Wow. Bye-bye. Wow. Did not I, sound uh, good. No. no. Wow. So if I may uh, moan, bitch, and complain. <laughs> <laughs> By all means, Bill. I love it when you do that. <laughs> this is a case where you need government. Mm-hmm. There's a big idea that we don't need government. Government should be small, 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 reduced government. We don't need it. And local local governments should make all the decisions about school closures, about uh, public transportation and so on. But I think this is a case where that's just not the best move. Do you agree, uh, Dr. Gowner? Yeah. You know, uh, infectious diseases like this, as we have clearly seen in the case of coronavirus, do not respect borders, whether it's a state border or a country border. And you really need an approach that matches the way the disease spreads. And that's not, um, you know, just having state and local health departments do this stuff. We really need a central command. Now, compared to the Spanish flu in 1918, Mm -hmm. air travel is much more common. Mm -hmm. Does that make it worse? Yes, in the sense that we're propagating this more quickly, we're spreading it more quickly, and the you're going to hear this expression flattening the curve in the coming weeks, which is really referring to can we slow transmission so that the healthcare system can keep pace. So if you have 100 people who come into the emergency department in, I don't know, in the morning with coronavirus, that's very different from having 100 people in a week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And so what we want to do is stretch this out as much as possible. Unfortunately, air travel makes it happen. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. This is a really important point because you hear people, and even like Boris Johnson in the UK was saying this, uh, maybe maybe we should just get out in front of this. What if just like everybody gets it now and we just kind of get it over with? Uh, And, you know, a lot of people are asking, why does it matter if everybody's going to, if 70% of the population is going to get it sooner or later, why does it matter whether it happens now or it happens later? So maybe you can just, just kind of reiterate that point because it's such an important yeah. idea. Yeah. Well, if we just say, okay, let's all get ourselves infected with coronavirus tomorrow. Okay. So some percentage of those people are going to get really sick. And what are we going to do? Just tell them to stay home and die at home? I mean, that's not a solution, right? And so they're going to go into the emergency room, and then the doctors and nurses in the emergency room are going to be completely overwhelmed. Not to, uh, you know, not to forget also that there are other patients who need to be seen there. So broken ankles, car wreck, yeah, or a stroke, you know, mm. or a heart attack, where time. We say time is muscle, time is brain. You know, if you don't get treatment for those things as soon as you walk in the door, that can really have devastating consequences. So uh, this brings us, I think, to another excellent question. Ricardo, Ricardo, are you out there? I'm here. Uh, Ricardo, uh, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Stanford University. Ah, yes, uh, in in San Francisco in California. Are are you a student there? Yes. Uh, yes, you, I am. I'm a graduate student. Are you attending classes, or are you doing things more remote at this point? Well, well, I'm mostly doing research, but even if I was taking classes, I couldn't be attending them because they canceled them. Or they didn't cancel them. They moved them online. Yeah, there you go. You're doing them remotely, or people are doing them remotely. Yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all remote. Uh, as of now, I believe Stanford was one of the very first mm-hmm. universities to implement this new measure. So what's your question? My question pertains to both the Chinese and the South Korean uh, governments, uh, countries, right? We can imagine why the draconian measures that were implemented in China is helping with this containment. But obviously, we don't live in a similar uh, regime as the Chinese one. Um, however, interestingly enough, the South Korean uh, government and the South Korean 
uh, society is uh, much similar to ours, at least with how you know the government is structured. Uh, yet they were also, or they are currently also able to contain this disease. And I'm curious to know what we can do and what we can model after in the United States. Well, I think what South Korea did was they scaled up testing massively very quickly. And when you ca- it's ha- you can't really control an outbreak if you don't have data and ideally real-time data to know where the transmission is going, who's at risk. And so that's what you need for containment. But we're weeks behind. And, and it's really sad because the Chinese, through their really draconian practices, bought us time, and we have wasted that time. And now, unfortunately... You know, we we still don't have testing fully out there, and you know we'll we'll see where we are in a week or two. We'll see what the real situation is. I suspect there's community transmission in much of the country already, and at that point, containment strategies don't really work anymore. Because it's out there everywhere. Yeah, horses are to the barn. What so, about everybody staying home? I think right, as Stanford is doing. Yeah, everybody's staying home. I think, well, you know, one interesting thing also about university campuses is you have a lot of young people and you have a lot of older people, right? So some of what you're really trying to do, again, is protect the older people in those communities, the professors. Like me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you, Bill. Um, <laughs> from those teeming, germ-filled students. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think those measures will help slow. It's not about containing anymore. It's about slowing it mm-hmm. so that the healthcare yeah. system can cope. So, so Dr. Flattening Gounder, I mean, here, here we are in New York City. We're in one of the, so the densest, most challenging places where you have you know, a lot of people traveling in the subway. You have people working in tall office buildings and in, 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 you know, in often open plan offices. How, I mean, New York is maybe an extreme case of, of what will we be able to do? Uh, how, how would you control the spread here? Well, you know, I think there's sort of um, two cities in New York City. You have the people who can stay home and work from home. And I think a lot of those people are already doing that now. But then you have people who work in the mm-hmm. service industry who cook, who clean, who take care who of Who podcast. Your, yeah. Who, well, no, if you podcast, you can probably do a lot of that. What are we thinking? <laughs> We're yeah. sitting together and in this room. Ever with somebody who works in a hospital. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't have a choice. I have yes. to go into work. And so there's, there are sort of two cities in that respect. You know, what can we do for the rest of the people um, in terms of slowing the spread? Again, testing is a key piece of that because that tells you where the transmission's happening, how to target your resources there. And that's really, you know, what we need to be doing right now, at least until we have a vaccine. Yeah, I would also say it's cultural as well. You know, um, our tendency to listen to public health officials, for example. I don't know to what extent the South Koreans are um, uh, tend to listen to any and all instructions given by experts versus, uh, you know, Americans here. From what I understand, the South Koreans are a bit more collectivist in their culture than we are. And that may also assist with containing this uh, epidemic. Yeah, 100 percent. 100%. 100%. You know, and sort of yeah. understanding that disease is social, societal. You know, I think we have this moralistic approach to disease in this country that it's your fault if you're sick. Um, and to understand that there are many other factors at play. It's not just your genetics. It's also, you know, where were you born? You know that, that your zip code is actually the number one predictor of your health in this country? It makes sense. To, yeah. to me, yeah. yeah, I mean, it summarizes a lot of risk factors: your environmental risk factors, your community risk factors, your race, your income. You know, mm. so many issues. And so, 
clearly that's not just personal responsibility. So I think we need to get away from that mindset and say, okay, if it's a social problem, it requires a social solution. Yeah, that's a okay. great question, All right, so, so, Yeah, right, that's a great you. question. Thank you very much. Stick around for more Science Rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Science Rules is back. All right, we have another caller on the line. We have J.D. from Texas. J.D., are you there? Hey, can you hear me? Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Sir, can you hear yes, me? Yes, we hear you. Uh, where are you calling from? Where in Texas? Uh, I'm from Waco. Waco. And uh, how are you feeling there? Uh, I feel pretty good. Uh, we canceled South by Southwest, which was pretty surprising. Right, I think that, that was a, that was a big deal. Yeah. So uh, and what is the question that you have there? Okay, so my question is, as we move into spring and into summer, could we see the virus start to spread less uh, like the flu does in a warmer climate? So the answer is yes, but it's not going to miraculously disappear. So I, and I, I think we're also very hopeful that this will be the case because, again, this will help slow spread, give us more time to sort of deal with it, um, not have emergency rooms flooded and so on. But we do typically see with cough, cold viruses, with the flu, that these things do slow down in the spring and summer months. And, and a big piece of that is that we're outside more where there's, you know, the great outdoors is the best ventilation you'll ever get, better than buying a HEPA filter at your Best Buy. And so that's part of it. You're not enclosed in tight spaces with other people. Some of it is also related to temperature and humidity at which viruses can persist on surfaces and remain infectious. But, you know, the the other thing, though, with that is I would say, okay, things slow down spring and summer, but then you have back to school. You have the temperature getting cooler again in the fall. I think you'll see a pickup again at, at that point. What about antiviral drugs? Is that something that we could see yeah. here and ready yeah. by, the, by the time the fall rolls around? <laughs> um, so there, there are a number of the things that have been tried. There's a HIV combo drug called Kalitra that was tried, didn't really seem to be very helpful. Remdesivir, which is a drug um, produced by Gilead, does seem promising. Uh, and I am hopeful, you know, and, and you have to remember the clinical trials um, for a vaccine are going to be different than for a drug because vaccine you're giving to a normal, healthy person to prevent disease. A drug is being given to somebody who's sick. So the way that you weigh risk and benefit is a little bit different. So it's possible to get a drug approved more quickly than it is a vaccine. So, you know, hopefully we can get data on remdesivir and maybe some other candidate drugs pretty soon in, you know, in the next several months so that it is something that we have at our disposal come the fall. So when you talk about flattening the curve, 
if we can all uh, be disciplined mm-hmm. over the next five months, six months, mm-hmm. then maybe on the other side there'll be some, maybe there'll be a drug at maybe least. Maybe there'll yeah. be yeah. something that could yeah. help out. All right, JD, thank you for that question. Thank you, JD. Yes, it was. All right, Bill, I love you. I've been watching you forever. Oh, I love you, man. <laughs> I love you, man. All right, so I got a couple. I think we have a couple questions that are specific, and they're the kind of thing that everybody wonders about. They're great questions. Uh, Emma, are you out there? Hi. Hi. How are you? We're fab. Well, we're fabulous. Where are you calling from? Uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, uh, fabulous. And what is your specific question? Yeah, um, I work in a large corporate environment, and I'm just wondering how long does the virus live on surfaces like doorknobs, uh, desktop countertops? That kind of thing. That's a good question. Yeah. When I say lives, remains intact, remains remains virulent. infectious. Yeah, remains yeah, infectious. infectious. Um, yeah, I mean, you're the scientist. You're going to have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so up to nine to ten days, it can persist on surfaces. Again, depending on temperature and and uh, humidity. You know, and the key thing there is to be wiping down surfaces, especially bathrooms and kitchens. Your regular household cleaners, your 409 or your Lysol or whatever your favorite brand is works just fine. It just needs to be used regularly, um, you know, between people touching surfaces to make sure you keep them clean. Uh, right, thank you. All right. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Uh, can we can we jump down to Dylan for a moment? Dylan, are you there? Dylan, are you out there? Yeah. Hi, I'm here. So you have a, where are you calling from? I'm calling from San Francisco. The city by the bay. Uh, and you have a specific yes, question. Yeah, I was wondering um, how effective working out and exercising is as a preventative measure. So if you stay healthy by working out, I can tell you as a guy who spends time in the gym almost every day, you're handling weights and handles and equipment that other people are waiting and handling and equipping. That's a good question. So on the no, one I mean hand, by running. Right. So exercise boosts the immune system. But if you're exercising in a gym, you're also in a high-risk environment. Uh, doctor, what do you think? Well, uh, listeners can't see this, but I am actually in gym clothes right now. I came here <laughs> uh, from a personal training session and was handling weights and other equipment. You know, how do you manage that risk? I have my own little Purell dispenser with me. I'm using it over and over. I wipe down the equipment, and then I clean my hands. You're saying you're a runner, right? Yes, sir. Well, if you're running, I don't know if you run on the treadmill or outside. No, outside, of course. I'm staying away from other people right now. Excellent. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's good for your heart and lungs, and having strong heart and lungs is definitely going to be protective against having severe illness with something like this. So I I would keep doing that. Okay. Okay, well, thank you for that question. All right, thank I, you. I think we have, uh, we have one more caller we can, uh, we can squeeze in here. We have uh, Trish from Pennsylvania. Trish, what's your oh. question? Oh, my gosh. Hi, Bill Nye. I love you. Uh, thank you, Trish. <laughs> that's, I, a, that's a statement, not a question, but we love that kind of a <laughs> statement. The, bring it on, my friend. Bring it on. Oh, you got me. Um, I just wanted to know, uh, just based upon your expertise in the science world, who do you count on? Who do you trust? to disseminate factual information because we're not getting the truth from our government right now. Mm-hmm. Well, the president is clearly just involved in magical thinking and uh, we just, it's just a problem. He let the, his vice president run things, I think, because he can, he can just talk more clearly about mm-hmm. it. 
But this may be an opportunity, and doctor, I'd like to hear your comment on this. Yes. This may be the mythic, dare I say it, wake-up call where people realize the value of civil servants, Mm -hmm. the value of expertise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the value of of trusted authority. This virus, it respects no no borders. (laughs) It respects no authority. It respects no one. Who, uh, that respects no ideology. Claims who has a hunch that's that would be more uh, valuable than data. That's a great question, Trish. So I'm really glad you asked it. It's good that it's coming at this point in the discussion because this has become a political issue because of this what seems like deliberate misinformation from yeah. Yeah. From the president. Yeah. All right. So so where do we go for good information? Well, where do you go for good information? Where do I go for good information? I am reading the New England Journal of Medicine, Journal, you know, JAMA, The Lancet. That's where I'm getting my What's information. What's JAMA? JAMA Journal us. of the American Medical Association. JAMA. So that's okay. where I get my information. But then, you know, that's not accessible to the average person. And so the question is, who translates that information in a way that you can understand? And I'm going to plug my podcast here, Epidemic. That is something that we're trying to do for people is to take that and give you a little bit of context also to sort of put the science in context and know what to do with it, know how to understand it. But, you know, some of the other people I really respect in this space, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Tony Fauci, anything he says... <laughs> I trust. He's, so if you see him quoted in a story, yes. you, you can be confident. 100%. Uh, Dr. Tom Frieden, the former director of the CDC, um, he is also an excellent resource. He's been putting a lot of stuff out there, writing, trying to summarize the data, help people make sense of it. Some of the journalists I really respect in this space, Lori Garrett, Helen Branswell, those are some of the top people uh, what about like to. going to the CDC website or I mean or just like general online resources or the things you would recommend? Yeah, so there's um this new website that was announced yesterday, coronavirus.gov, which we're gonna see all of the late night shows, I'm sure, do some sort of spoof of. But it basically just sends you <laughs> it basically just sends you to the section of the CDC website, which is all about coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And they are trying to put mm-hmm. some really common sense guidance for people, you know, whether it's about mm-hmm. what to do at home, what to do at the office, how to think about travel, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things. I think that is still a reliable source of information. That's wonderful because right now I'm just nervous for the average American who's getting their information disseminated to them and it's wrong. So, uh, absolutely. There, there has uh, been a lot of confusing information. So thank you so much for that question. Thank you, Trish. Carry on. Thank and you. Take good care. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I have no skin left, Bill. I yes, have no and, don't, and don't touch <laughs> your face. So hard, but don't touch your face. I, I won't. Ever. You know, I've kind of given up on the don't touch your face thing on some level because I think we all do it, even though we really try not to do it. Thinking about it makes it even worse. Yeah, I think what I would suggest is just use hand sanitizer constantly so that even if you do touch your face, you're not going to, you know, self-inoculate with something. Does alcohol or the Purell-style products, sanitizers, do they get rid of the virus just by wiping it off or is there a do they denature? Is there some chemical mechanism? Well, the outer coating of the virus is a lipid. Um, so like a fat? Like a, like a, yeah, fat, like a, like a fat. fatty molecule. And so essentially that's getting denatured by the alcohol in your hand sanitizer. It's, the molecule is falling apart. Exactly. Okay. There you go. Constant, continual <laughs> hand sanitizing. And the sanitizing sound of lightning. Yes. Bill, uh, I think that means it's time... For the lightning round. Yeah, so here we go, okay. doctor. doctor. Here we go quick. Get quickly. ready for lightning questions and lightning answers. Okay. Doctor, what is the biggest myth about the coronavirus? 
that it's a hoax. Ah, there you go. Which is scarier, Ebola or coronavirus? Coronavirus. Why is that? I think many more people will die. Wow. Do you do you know anyone who has corona who's uh, sick? Personally, yes. no. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. I will. Hundred percent. Really? Hundred percent. Okay. Uh, How do you greet people now? Are you using Namaste. the Namaste? Namaste. You're, Namaste. You're not using the Vulcan salute. No, not that's not so much <laughs> that's my. It's a little hardcore. Yeah. What non-perishable item of food are you most excited to keep around? Huh. For me, it's pasta. Come on. Pasta yeah, and sauce. Yeah, probably pasta. I mean, come on. Pasta. You, just, you, can yeah, you have a large supply of pasta. And, <laughs> and, and you, can't, you can eat pasta for a long time without getting sick of it. Really? Yeah, and I guess I feel I'm just not same. into carbs very much. So we, mm. we, we're freezing a lot of stuff. What are you freezing? Uh, do you know what ratatouille is? Sure. Yeah, oh. I love that stuff. Oh, man. And you can serve it with all kinds it's of It's whatever's things. left over chopped up in the pot. It's, yeah, that, that movie was plant. great for popularizing it for yeah, the average American. Yeah. <laughs> all right, last question in the lightning round. What is the most worrisome disease that people are not talking about? Ooh, that's an interesting question. Hmm. Is it the flu, type B? Maybe. Because let's talk about me. I got a flu shot in August. I got really sick with type B in December. Yeah, yeah maybe. I mean, hepatitis A, there's also outbreaks of across the country right now. That's exciting. Um, <laughs> By that, I mean it sucks. <laughs> yeah. This has been cool. Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you for bringing some clarity. Our guest today has been Dr. Celine Gownert. Celine, if you would remind the listeners of the name of your podcast. Epidemic. Epidemic. About that's, that's easy epidemics. To yeah. About diseases. Yeah, so season one is coronavirus. It's, here it is. Coronavirus all day, all the time. Turn it up loud. Listen to it over <laughs> and over. Stream it day and night. Uh, I'm Bill Nye. I am Corey S. Powell. And remember, when it comes to the infectious part of our universe, Science Rules. Science Rules is produced by Claire Rawlinson and the very same Corey S. Powell. Yeah. Our engineer today, once again, has been Casey Halford, who also mixed this episode and composed our original theme music. Special thanks to Jordan Bell and Ashley Warren. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, I remind you, science rules. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.